afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 13th installment of Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler, brought to you by 90.5 KCSU. Now, in last week's episode, I gave my two cents on the Hall of Fame and the fiasco that was the 2021 election. It was a bit more of a serious episode because I felt like it was something that I just really needed to get off of my chest. But today's episode should be a little bit more fun. Today we're going to talk about the Chicago Cubs and their 108 year drought leading up to their World Series victory in 2016. First off, let's talk about the two seasons leading up to that 108 year drought. In both 1907 and 1908, the Cubs won their first two World Series titles. Back in those days, there were still only 16 teams in the MLB, 8 in the National League and 8 in the American League. And the Cubs conquered pretty much all of them. In 1907, they finished with a 107 and 45 record, going 54 and 19 at home and 53 and 26 on the road. They ended up with 15 wins more than the second place team, the Detroit Tigers. The domination didn't just end there. The playoffs came around and the Cubs steamrolled through, eventually winning the World Series four games to none with one tie in Game 1 after it was eventually abandoned 12 innings in. During the season, the Cubs scored around 574 runs while only giving up 390 runs. Similarly, the Cubs scored 19 runs in the World Series and only gave up 6 to the Tigers. This impressive run differential was led by a plethora of outstanding pitchers such as Orville Overall, who had a 1.68 ERA with 23 wins and 7 losses in his unbelievable season. Mordecai Brown was another going 20-6 and with a 1.39 ERA. I mean, both of these season performances are almost unheard of in the present day. But it's not just the defense and the pitching that creates this sort of run differential, but the hitting as well. And boy, was there a lot of offense. There was seemingly no weak link, so to speak, in the Cubs lineup. Seven of the eight starters were batting above 250, and each had close to 50 RBIs and 60 to 70 runs each. One of these sluggers was Harry Steinfeld, the third baseman who led the team in RBIs with 70, along with 25 doubles and an impressive 266 average on top of his 144 hits. Now, to put that into perspective, Steinfeld was averaging just under a hit per game. Frank Chance, the first baseman, led the team with a 293 batting average, striking out just 21 times during the entire season. <laughs> so, not only was the pitching incredibly consistent, but man, so were the bats. The 1908 Cubs followed a similar game plan with an almost exact replica of the team steamrolling themselves to a 99-55 and 55 record, once again defeating the Tigers four games to one. Mordecai Brown had another unbelievable season, going 29-9 and nine with a 147 ERA, as Harry Steinfeld and Joe Tinker led the offense to 624 runs during that season. And then the 1909 season rolled around. A similar Cubs team took on the National League like usual, with Mordecai Brown and Orville overall tearing up the season, raking in 104 wins for just 49 losses. However, a new rival had appeared. The Pittsburgh Pirates, who had been in second place the past two seasons, had finally had enough. Led by the hard-hitting shortstop 
Onus Wagner and the pitching prowess of, of Howie Kamnitz, the Pirates soared up in the standings winning 110 games and eventually beating the Tigers again in 1909. Poor Tigers, huh? 1910 was about a similar story, but the Cubs had made it back to another World Series, winning 104 games. But they would just get pummeled by the Philadelphia Athletics four games to one. Now as the seasons went on, like with any other team, some of the Cubs who led the team to their first two championship titles were starting to get old and retire or get traded and just really eventually leave. The wins started to decrease and so did the standings. In 1915, the Cubs had their first losing season since 1902 when they went 73 and 80, finishing fourth in the National League. The Cubs had their moments during the slight depression, including the 1918 season where they went 84 and 45 under the pitching of Hippo Vaughn, who had a career best 22 wins and a 174 ERA that year. But even then, the Cubs were no match for the Boston Red Sox, who were led by none other than the Sultan of Swat, Babe Ruth. During this drought, the team moved from the west side of Chicago to the north side, to a park that would soon be known as Wrigley Field. The Cubs wouldn't have another World Series appearance until 1929, when a 33-year-old Rogers Hornsby joined the team. The future Hall of Famer would lead the team to two World Series appearances in 1929 and 1932, but even his efforts weren't enough to get the Cubs another win. By this point, the drought had been extended to 24 years without a World Series win, and fans knew it. As it happened in 1935 and 1938, the Cubs would get so close and then just lose it all in the World Series. Each one of these teams had veteran experience, but the other team just outscored and frankly outpitched the Cubs. But to be fair, it did take some of the best players and teams to take down the Cubs. Just like the 1938 Yankees, who was led by Joe DiMaggio, Lou Gehrig, and Red Ruffing, all of which are now in the Hall of Fame. But besides all that, it's time to talk about the Billy Goat Curse. 1945 rolled around and seemingly out of nowhere, the Cubs won a Major League Best 98 games, led by the league MVP at that time, Phil Cavaretta, who hit 355 with 177 hits and only 34 strikeouts the entire season. To the World Series, the Cubs went as they were set to battle Hal Neuhauser and the Tigers for the championship. The Cubs won Game 1 and Game 3 pretty effortlessly, and it seemed that the drought was almost up. However, during Game 4, something very strange happened. So some background to this, near Wrigley Field at the time, there was a place called the Billy Goat Tavern that was owned by Billy Sianis. Now on that October day, Sianis bought two tickets for the game, one for him and one for his pet goat, Murphy, who had become somewhat of a good luck charm for the Cubs kind of a mascot that would walk around every now and then. Now, as the two walked in, the ushers at the front gate stopped them and wouldn't let them in since, well, no pets were allowed at the park. After much arguing, it took the club's owner, P.K. Wrigley, to finish it. He said that Billy could come in, but not the goat because, well, it stinks. Frustrated, Billy left, but not before saying, the Cubs ain't gonna win no more. The Cubs will never win a World Series so long as the GOAT is not allowed in Wrigley Field. And they didn't. The Cubs were quickly overrun by the Tigers and, just like Billy Sianis warned, 
the Cubs lost the World Series. And for that matter, didn't go back to another World Series until 2016. This began the worst stretch in the history of the franchise. For 20 straight seasons starting in 1947, the Cubs never finished with a record above 500 and never placed higher than fifth place in the standings. In 1962, they set a team record for losses when they lost 103 games, a record that they'd meet once more in 1966. Now, I think it's important to point out that the Cubs weren't really lacking in talent during this drought. Ernie Banks, Mr. Cub himself, had his Hall of Fame career during this drought. So did Ryan Sandberg, Billy Williams, and even Greg Maddox for a few seasons. And I think all of these players were a huge help to Cubs fans as they kind of shined a light of hope for every fan during the darkest time in Cubs history. Oh, and did you think that we were done with these curses? Nope, <laughs> not even close. As I mentioned before, baseball is a very superstitious sport, but sometimes it just gets weird. In 1969, the Cubs were finally starting to gain some solid ground in the standings and started winning ball games once again. In 1967 and 1968, they had finally found themselves with a winning record for the first time, well, consecutively at least, since 1946 and 1947. The Cubs started out eight and a half games ahead in the National League East and kept that league going into August. Everything was looking up and the Cubs were within sight of the postseason once again. Even Billy Sianis felt satisfied and claimed that the curse had been lifted, quote unquote. And then going into the second half of August and heading into the all important month of September, the Cubs started a huge slide. They went 17 and 26 to finish the season, finishing second to the New York Mets and finishing once again outside of the playoffs. Now, there's a lot of superstition around this season as well, as you may have guessed, including the GOAT itself still being pissed off even though Billy wasn't, and keeping the curse on the Cubs. But there was another animal that visited the Cubs on September 9th, midway through their eight-game losing streak. A black cat had gotten loose from the stands and had walked in front of the Cubs' dugout, and what many Cubs fans believe was a sign that the curse was still very much in effect. There were only two more seasons after that that the Cubs finished above 500 in 1970 and 1972. But once again, they plummeted back into an unprecedented losing season streak that would last another 11 years. And we're still not quite done with the Billy Goat curse. You see, in 1973, after two straight years of winning records, Sam Sianis, the nephew of Billy Sianis, and a columnist named Dave Condon tried their hand at lifting the curse. They brought a new goat to the field named Socrates. And this one's really funny because they ended up bringing him in this really nice, huge limo that even had a red carpet and everything to try and get the curse lifted. But once again, the goat was denied at the gate because Wrigley Field still wasn't allowing pets in. And the curse continued. It wasn't until 1984 that the Cubs broke the streak and ended their now 39-year postseason drought. And this team was good. Ryan Sandberg, Dennis Eckersley, and Rick Sutcliffe pushed the Cubs to an NL Best 96 wins that year and took it all the way to the NLCS that they ended up losing in Game 5, partly due to 
a ground ball through the legs of the first baseman, Leon Durham, that allowed the Padres to continue a four-run seventh inning. Three years later, the Cubs would make another playoff run before the NOS San Francisco Giants ended it and advanced to the World Series at Wrigley. And who can forget Sammy Sosa and Kerry Wood, who helped the Cubs win 90 games in 1998. After winning a wild tiebreaker against the Giants, they would get swept by the Braves in the NLDS. We're now so close to the end of the drought. There's only one more big thing I feel that it's important to talk about before we get to 2016. The year is 2003, and the Cubs had just won 19 of their last 27 games of the season to claim the NL Central Division. They swept through the Braves without much trouble in the NLDS, and went into the NLCS with a full head of steam and determination. The Cubs started out hot against the Marlins, winning three of the first four games of the series. After dropping Game 5 to the Marlins, they went back to Wrigley to try and finish the series. With a 3-0 lead, with one out in the eighth inning, the Marlins' second baseman, Luis Castillo, stepped up to the plate. The then 22-year-old Mark Pryor delivered a breaking ball that Castillo popped up down the third base side. As the left fielder Alou drifted over to catch it, it was blocked and knocked into the stand by a man named Steve Bartman. Now, in Bartman's defense, it would have been a tough catch for Alou regardless, but if he had had that chance to make the play and make the catch, it would have been a quick and painless two outs for Pryor. But instead, Castillo would later walk, and then the Marlins' bats would take off. And the next night, the Cubs would end up losing the series, extending their drought to 58 years. But now, we get to the fun part. In 2015, the Cubs started to make a lot of acquisitions, and started to bring up young talent mixed with some experienced bats and seasoned pitchers. All of a sudden, the Cubs had won 97 games, and reached the NLCS for the first time since that faithful 2003 season. They may have lost the NLCS that year, but as soon as the next year started, they just kept winning. By 2016, the Cubs seemed absolutely unstoppable, winning 103 games, the most in franchise history since 1910. By the end of the 2016 season, the Cubs had a demanding 17 and a half game lead above the second place Cardinals. It seemed that no matter what John Lester, Kyle Hendricks, Jake Arrieta, Anthony Rizzo, Javier Baez, and the team did, they couldn't stop winning. After handling the Giants without much trouble in the NLDS, the Cubs went down two games to one against the seemingly unhittable Clayton Kershaw and the Dodgers. But they rallied through and earned their first pennant since 1945, the year that the Billy Goat curse started. The Cubs went up against the Cleveland Indians, who were also in a bit of World Series drought as well, with their last one coming in 1948. The World Series lasted seven games with the Cubs finishing on top, breaking the 108-year drought and the curse that was brought upon the Cubs all those years ago. The win ended the longest title drought in the history of North American professional sports. Man, I hope the Rockies don't make us wait that long. So, a bit of a longer episode this week, since we had to cover, well, about 108 years of Cubs baseball, and all the oddities, the wins, and the losses that came with it. But next week, I want to change gears once again, and talk about the Sultan of Swat, the King of Crash, the Colossus of Clout, Babe Ruth. Thank you for listening.